This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have one of the great American foreign policy and national security journalist of our time with us. He's the former uh, senior national security correspondent for Newsweek, the Daily Beast. He's now a columnist for Bloomberg News on foreign policy. And uh, he was also my very first boss, the man who taught me everything I know about writing and research. He's one of my legit personal heroes. Eli Lake is here. And we're going to get into tons of good stuff about journalism, foreign policy and all that. But first, uh, let me set the stage quickly. Everyone knows what happened the morning of July 4th, 1776. Second Continental Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence. But what far fewer people remember is that after they were done with that business, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson actually were given another assignment that very evening to work on another project. And that was designing the official seal of the new nation that they just established. And after some deliberation, here's the proposal that Franklin came up with. And I quote, Moses standing on the shore and extending his hand over the sea, thereby causing the same to overwhelm Pharaoh, who's sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head and a sword in his hand, raised from a pillar of fire in the clouds, reaching to Moses to express that he acts by command of the deity. That was the original proposal for the seal of the United States. And the motto they proposed to go with it, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And you know, it's fashionable these days among, you know, American foreign policy elites to think very cynically about freedom, political liberty, because it's something we enjoy. And in fact, we deserve in America, but it's just like one way to live. And there are plenty of others. And really, who's to say, you know, freedom's any good anyway. And to an extent, I get it. One thing we've learned from the last two decades is that freedom and political liberty are really hard to translate into an effective foreign policy. But I often feel like the baby, I mean, Honestly, the whole family ends up getting thrown out with the bathwater. And we should keep talking aspirationally and thinking strategically about freedom, not just for ourselves, but for others across the world who don't have it. That was the lesson the founders sought to draw from the book of Exodus, from the splitting of the sea. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And in the contemporary world of political commentary and journalism, I think one of the most consistent voices keeping that balance of realism and aspiration. One of our best repositories of sanity and sanctity is actually our guest today. He's a man of of deep integrity, uh, most importantly, but also just an incredible amount of experience he, he has. He's the former senior national security correspondent for Newsweek, The Daily Beast. He's a columnist for Bloomberg News. He's the brilliant, the inimitable Eli Lake. Eli, thank you so much for being here. Sorry, that was a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, having watched your career blossom as a rabbi from afar, uh, it gives me nothing but nachas. <laughs> you are are really making our world a better place. I really owe anything I do that's at all positive uh, to you. So I, I, if you're right, then uh, it's it's only it's only because of you. So uh, actually, before we start, I'm gonna. This is a curveball, but this is good. We're two old friends. <laughs> I, I have to. I'll share a little personal news. Uh, in August, I became a father. Yes. So I have a little girl now. Her name is Nora. And one of the things as a rabbi that I thought was interesting, just a thing I would share, is that we are going to do the baby naming a little bit later, partly because of COVID in Philadelphia, because right before my daughter was born, my father died. And part of the memorial for my father, we want to have a baby naming at uh, my parents' synagogue in Philadelphia. And so 
Nika and I have been doing research on the ceremony for a girl, a baby naming. What we found, and this is not, not me like claiming some amazing research, but in just talking to our local JCC and the rabbi for the Jewish uh, Germantown Jewish Center in Philadelphia, we, ha- we, we know a whole lot about when you have a, a boy with circumcision and the bris, but there's really no Jewish ceremony for when you have a girl. So it's kind of like, make it up. <laughs> I, I mean, I just found that very interesting that, that our faith, uh, Judaism, doesn't have a kind of welcome the girl to the Jewish community in the same way it does, obviously. And I understand the, listen, when everybody complains about the bris, I say, well, you, sh- you should have talked to Joshua's army on the eve of invading Canaan, because I can tell you that that bris was far worse than, uh, you know, the, the standard stuff today. Anyway, getting circumcised right before going into battle is a huge bummer. <laughs> yeah. As a grown man. Right. <laughs> they have to do it themselves, right? With Flint Rock or something. Is that- yeah. Yeah. So actually, interestingly enough, there there's a lot of interesting history about baby naming rituals, not just for boys, but for girls, too. Simchat Bat, Azevat Bat. And it goes back quite far. Uh, but funnily enough, look, I think it's almost it's almost coincidental that baby namings for a boy have any significance, because what really ends up having significance is just the ritual that goes or that it goes with, namely the circumcision. If not for that, I suspect it wouldn't be a thing either. It's kind of like birthdays. Like one of my teachers once pointed this out to me. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's one of the great kind of American Jewish theologians of the 20th century, put great store by by birthday celebrations. But he, but a teacher of mine pointed out to me that if you look in the Bible, the only person who actually ever celebrates a birthday is Pharaoh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so these like commemorative things, I, they don't have like a strong tradition in, in Judaism. But today you have that that kind of Simchat Bat celebrating the naming of uh, uh, and the the birth of a girl. Having uh, a couple girls myself, we've had our fair share of those. It's pretty fun. I want to start with some of those basics. Yeah. So speaking of kids, back when I was a wee lad, uh, young and incompetent, arguably still those things, uh, you agreed for some insane, inexplicable reason to allow me to be your research assistant. I think it was 2007, I want to say. And you were breaking stories like a boss from the Middle East. And it was one of the best times of my life working for you. Oh, thank you. Well, you were great, by the way. <laughs> you were you were fantastic. <laughs> I learned an enormous amount. But I think the thing that shocked me the most was just how demanding and difficult it was to be like an actual real reporter like yourself, especially doing foreign affairs. Like I remember near the end of my time working for you, I asked you what I would need to do if I wanted to get started in the field. And and I'll never forget this as long as I live. You said, in all seriousness, well, I think your first step should be to move to Cairo for a year or two. And I even remember in like a bout of... (laughs) of insanity floating that by my then girlfriend, now wife, and getting like the hardest pass that she's ever given me on anything. (laughs) But you were dead serious. So in an era like this one that takes journalism for for granted to an extent, like what does it take to do honest to God, high quality reporting on foreign affairs? Well, that's a great question. I mean, listen, the industry is changing and it's changed a lot. And as a columnist now, I do a lot of analysis and I have tended to, particularly in a story I followed very closely, kind of shorthand known as Russiagate, I have tried to do the opposite of what we were doing at The Sun, which is to try to break news first and get pieces of stuff. Because so much of what we were told in this sort of scrum of, you know, what was coming down the pike with the Mueller investigation and Trump years turned out to be wrong. I thought it was important in evaluating what went wrong with the Russia investigation to go to really take the time to read through boring official documents, to watch the hearings, and then to almost try to give you the last word instead of the first word. I say that as a parenthetical, as opposed to like 
you know, being the first one to kind of find out, you know, some nugget or something in a report, I think is more valuable to readers now, especially in a kind of role as a columnist to maybe not be the first person to tell you their take on something, but to, to give it careful attention, to read it through and to put it into context. And I found that that's, there's, that's why I, lo- I love writing for commentary, which I've been doing a lot in the last two years, because that gives you the space to do that kind of thing. Now, back to your question. If you want to get into kind of Washington-based journalism, the way that I did it is I got a job, my first job in journalism with trade newsletter that covered the Environmental Protection Agency. In that job, what you're doing is two things that are very important. You're writing for an audience of experts as opposed to a general audience. So it's not great for your writing because you have to be very technical, but it means you have to really know your stuff. And the second thing is those kinds of jobs sort of throw you into the into the ocean immediately in the sense that you are meeting with people who are in government, who are lobbying government, who are in Congress, and you're developing sources, and you're finding ways to like kind of advance the story uh, with the people who follow the story most closely. And those skills really paid off once I made the transition into a more general audience, uh, first with a forward, and then with UPI, the New York Sun, and later the Washington Times, and the Daily Beast, and Newsweek, and, and finally in Bloomberg, and that the ability to understand how our government works at a sort of micro level. This is why we go to oversight hearings. This is why there's an authorization bill and then there's an appropriations bill, things like that, which someone who is just starting out wouldn't know. That's the roadmap for finding the stories that uh, haven't been reported or getting scoops. And then finally, you have to be, you know, socially intelligent in the sense that you have to be able to, to meet with people, forge relationships with people, and they would trust you with information. And that means for people who are like Zoomers, Generation Z, who are like, we're listening to this, you can't just have that relationship through text. You have to make phone calls. You have to meet with people. You have to have a, a human relationship with these folks. And then that actually is very helpful because once you start to get to know people, you realize there's very few instances in my experience in journalism where there's a hundred percent a villain and a hundred percent a hero. It's always always more complicated. There are always reasons why government officials do things that end up being terrible blunders. They're always like there's a rationale. It's very rare that you find that you know an opposing politician just has a black heart and is doing everything you know for terrible reasons. You can disagree. You can think someone's very dangerous. I certainly think that there's a lot about Trump that was very dangerous. But I also thought that he was portrayed in such a way as a caricature that in the Trump years journalists stop really kind of covering him in a serious way. And that we've seen what has been the result. The result has been the collapse in trust in not just the media, but, you know, the FBI. I mean, it's it's a really bad situation we have right now in the country where tens of millions of people think the media is constantly lying to them. I don't think that's true, by the way. But I can also understand why they feel that they've been kind of sold a bill of goods about a series of things that turned out to be wrong. And there has been very little accountability in the media to deal with it. So actually, that that's a good transition, meaning there there's this sense of just widespread distrust that I think can kind of lead you to think in a disproportionately negative way about the, kind of like the, the American experiment itself. Like a few months ago, for example, we had Trey Stevens on the pod. He's one of the founders of Anderl Industries. It's a startup in the defense industry. And one of the things we talked about was this wonderful essay that he wrote on, on Augustine, Just War Theory, and the Ethics of Weapons Development. And the wider point that he made was that it's actually like a moral mistake to think that 
American technologists should just wash their hands of defense as if that's some way for them to be neutral. You know, like extremely illiberal actors like the Chinese Communist Party or Putin's Russia have leveraged those very same defense technologies to do immense global harm. And it's actually a good thing for us to be a step ahead and to be able to oppose those things. And now you did a great and sobering story. I think it was like a month or two ago on an Iranian attack on a U.S. base in Syria and what it might look like for America to fall behind in, in drone technology. Well, I don't think America's going to fall behind. I think it's more of the Iranians have caught up. Now, I think most lay people, and by the way, myself included until recently, probably just assume America's like way ahead of everybody else. Uh, certainly Iran, uh, but but everybody else as well on weapons and defense. But is that really the case? And how do we address this moving forward? Well, drones are an interesting thing because the technology in a sense is is at this point pretty basic, right? I mean, the drone that you can buy a 12-year-old that is fun to play with is the same technology. I mean, you could turn that drone into some a, a terrible weapon. I, I think like 10 or 15 years ago, this was, you know, pretty cool science fiction. It's not anymore. And so in that respect, it's, it should be surprising that the Iranians can kind of get off the shelf drone technology, modify it. And they've been trying to do this for a long time. The difference is that the ability to sort of swarm drones, and we saw a, a, an attempt on the, the Iraqi prime minister a few months ago that was through a drone strike. That's scary. Uh, the ability to sort of, for the Iranians to sort of overwhelm traditional kind of air defense, and they're getting better at the tactics and so forth. Now, that is something that should be watched carefully. And there, I think there are there is countermeasure technology that exists, but more of it needs to exist. And there certainly needs to be a better job in the Pentagon of sort of streamlining all of their different platforms so that they're, you know, cheaper, easier to deploy, that kind of thing. So I want to transition way away from this to a shared love that we have that I don't think we've actually ever talked about before, which is hip hop. Well, I think we've talked, we talked about it when you, we were way back in the day. No, we did a lot of rock and roll, but we didn't get to okay. a lot of hip I'm going to get to Don't worry about it, please. Okay. All right. Very good. But hip hop, arguably the purest American art form, maybe jazz, you could argue, but those two are obviously related in important ways. And I think if you're not already a hip hop fan, one of the hardest subgenres to get into I think it's gangster rap. Like if I'm trying to get someone into hip hop, I'll usually start with like Tribe Called Quest, but I barely even try with like Wu-Tang or Biggie or Tupac or what have you. So what's the case for gangster rap if you're not already a hip hop fan? Well, I would, first of all, I don't know if I would characterize Wu-Tang as gangster rap. That's a good point. I don't know if, no, I would characterize Biggie as necessarily gangster. Gangster rap for me is like, I associate that with- Like Schooly D, Ice Cube, Ice T, like maybe some of those guys. Yeah, right. Well, first of all, like all music, it hits you on a level that is deeper than the meaning of the lyrics themselves. So if you're if you're obsessed with the lyrics, and that's if you if, if let me put it like this: if if I was to give you like the printout of the lyrics of I don't know the Chronic by Dr. Dre, I think you would be correct if you sort of dismissed it as dog roll. You'd say, well, this is just vulgar and profane and misogynistic and homophobic, whatever you want. All of it that is true when you look at that stuff. What makes it powerful music, in my view, is that it's not just a printout of words on a piece of paper. It's the delivery with the music itself. Dr. Dre uh, revolutionized music production, not just hip hop, but music production when he made The Chronic by the way that he processed the sounds and amplified certain elements of the sounds and put them through various kinds of filters, it sounds different than what came before it. And people have learned from that. So on the one, so there's a lot of gangster rap, at least the best gangster rap, in my view, that just is, you know, uh, 
in advance, you know, sonically. He's like an engineering genius in a similar way to like McCartney and Lennon. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Or Phil Spector. Right. Or like Chris Martin or whatever. Yeah. And, and the second thing I would just say is that you you have to separate the art from the artist. I say it over and over and over again. One of my favorite rock bands is probably The Clash. Their politics were like Marxist gobbledygook. <laughs> I don't agree with their politics. I still can like love their music. And I think that that's very important. If you, I mean, you can go down the list. Pablo Picasso was a terrible person. He was a misogynist. He made great art. You appreciate the art. You separate that from the artist and you realize that we are all flawed and cracked vegetables. And it's very rare, actually, to have somebody who is truly an artistic genius also happen to be a good person. I would say Paul McCartney is that like unicorn in that regard. He's a great person, it appears, and a musical genius. And even he at times is like a bit of a, you know, he, you know, he could be difficult to George Harrison, I suppose. <laughs> I, I don't know about you. We've all watched Get Back. Yeah. And if you haven't, just get Disney Plus right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. So on the question of gangster rap, so that's the first argument is that like, well, you know, it's the music. Listen for the music. The music's really interesting and good. And then it's important also, I think, to maybe put it into, it tells us something about the time in which it was made. I mean, I don't know if there's still gangster rap being made today, but gangster rap is something I really associate with the late 80s, the 90s, and elements of 2000s. And it's actually really an interesting question, right? Like, why did, you know, if you look at the history of hip hop, it starts leaving aside the Sugar Hill Gang, which is just kind of like nursery rhyme. Very important record, but, you know, let's leave that aside. The first hip hop is like pretty socially conscious. If you look at like Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Fury. Africa Bombada. Africa Bombada. These are people who are coming at things from a pretty sophisticated critique about the state of the inner city and the lack of opportunities. And it, you know, it's not that different than like, the, at least politically, than what like someone like a Gil Scott Heron, something like that. So what is it that happened in American culture and African-American culture that created an, a market for and kind of musical uh, movement of music that celebrated wanton violence in a lot of ways? It celebrated treating women like property that celebrated the pursuit of purely material things and measuring one's worth on, you know, how nice your car is or your clothes or something like that. That to me is a really interesting and that duality. And you see it in throughout hip hop history. You see that tension all the time. You know, that's why we had, you know, we had a response to gangster rap, sometimes called backpack rap or conscious rap and playing off those kinds of things to me is very interesting then you can finally like just look at it as the level of wordplay which is say i don't have to agree with the content of a message to appreciate the rhyme structure that that's where i usually start it's it's so next level brilliant when you get into it yeah absolutely and it, it well i mean it's like any other genre there's really great and there's terrible and right in between but if you just sort of appreciate it on that level you know as just you know, like the prose stylist, right? Like I don't have to agree with Graham Greene or Jean Le Carre to understand that they're great stylists in their own right as writers. And I can learn from them as a writer reading their prose, even though I don't necessarily come down on where they came down in the Cold War or any other number of things like that. So we've gone from like the 90s, like where I came of age in the 90s, where it was really trendy to freak out about like selling out, quote unquote, like think about movies like Fight Club, which were satirizing this or, you know, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, like refusing to do anything remotely commercial. So to now where we think about it as normal for someone like like Ice Cube to go from like making records about fighting the establishment to making like huge, big budget blockbuster movies. So how did we get there? I feel like hip hop artists played a big role in that. But how did we get there? And what does it tell us about Americans? 
society? Well, doesn't first of all tell us something about the resilience of the broader kind of American system. Yeah. Because the American system is such, because we're a free market for now. <laughs> and, you know, it allows for even the most radical voices like ice cubes in the early 1990s to reinvent themselves and become part of a very safe Hollywood establishment. Now, I mean, I guess a younger version of myself would have been like, and that's why America stinks or I'm not me. I'm, I'm hypothetically me, but you know, I was a leftist might say, and that's, see, that's the problem. Like, you know, it, it steals away our best, you know, or something like that. But I think it's a great strength in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's like the American dream. <laughs> and it's a reminder that people evolve. One of the problems with the social media age and the mobbing and cancel culture and all of these things is that it defines someone by a single tweet or something they said, and it doesn't allow for that the person can grow or change their view upon reflection. And certainly it seems that Ice Cube is no longer somebody who would like celebrate mob violence against a Korean store or killing cops or something. He's very much a part of the Hollywood establishment. He makes very nice movies. And why can't that be uh, a mark in Ice Cube's credit, right? hundred percent. So actually, speaking of growth, at the end of my time working for you, you got me a gift. And I, I don't know if you remember what it was, but you bought me uh, Van Morrison's album, A Period of Transition. Oh, yes, I do. And I think I got you something else. Too. I got you. It, this is Nisi. Denise Williams. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. That's exactly right. Oh my God. Well, so, so just, just on a period of transition. Oh my God. You're, you're totally right. It's actually one of his less critically acclaimed albums, but you, you told me at the time, and I remember this very clearly, like, don't listen to the haters. This one's great. And I actually love it to this day. Flamingos Fly, Heavy Connection. It's got some great stuff on it. So what's the case for this part of Van Morrison's career? Like, it's not early, like, Astral Weeks and, like, so like what's the case for this part of Van Morrison's career? Okay, so first of all, I should say, if you haven't listened to Astral Weeks, it's really brilliant and open up your mind. It's a great record. It's almost like a jazz record. I love that. I love Moondance, Tupelo Honey, St. Dominic's Free. All of the classic Van Morrison's are great. What I like about Flamingo Fly is that it's a return, or I'm sorry, a period of transition, is that it's Van Morrison attempting to create the very brassy Stax soul sound and putting his own spin on it. And he's a talented enough songwriter that he's not just doing pastiche work, even though it, it is in some ways a kind of, it, it's an homage, but it's not entirely derivative. So there's enough there. The songs are original enough. And I really like it. He captures a kind of... I think he only did this style for this one album, but it's really worth it. If And so it's funky, you know, it's definitely, it's almost like it, you can dance to it, but it also a gateway into the great soul music of the like late sixties, Jackie Wilson, things like that. I like it. And I like that he forced himself to come up with a new sound instead of kind of just going with the old formula. And that's always a mark of a true genius. And Van Morrison certainly is a genius. So I want to go back to Dr. Dre for a second. You mentioned him before. So I've talked about this a little bit on the pod before, but I have this kind of observation about Compton and the role that it kind of plays as a hip hop capital. Oh, well, first of all, Compton is a hip hop capital. I, I'm with you. I want to get to that. I want to get to that. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I would say Bronx, Queensbridge. Those are, uh, there are others. <laughs> I'm a Long Island boy, so I'm firmly with you. And I actually want to get to that in a second. So wait, put that in your back pocket. Okay. So, 
Compton, just to use it as an example for this reason, like if you look at the big artists coming out of Compton, like late 80s, early 90s, so it's like Easy, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Tupac, you know, Snoop, those guys. That's a certain type of aesthetic. You fast forward 30 years to today, the big artists that come out of Compton are like Kendrick Lamar, Vince Staples. In Chicago, it's Kanye, it's Chance the Rapper. You have a lot of artists like that where the big artists today are deeply religious. They kind of draw on the Bible in like a much more direct and interesting way. And that seems to me like one path of evolution that hip hop has taken. So has hip hop gotten more like faith driven or were we just not paying attention? That's a great question. I think Coloring Book from Chance the Rapper is a wonderful advertisement for religion. Yeah. First of all, it's honest. Yes. It's artistically relevant. It's very creative. Again, it's not just pastiche. He's kind of hurtling the genre forward in, in sort of the full bloom of his genius. And I really treasure that record. I still play it. And I remember when it came out, I just thought not every song is about God, but the ones that are, are about the struggle. It's not just about praising God, or which to me is, that's not going to be that interesting. It's about the struggle with it and, and how it can be difficult. To me, that's great. The one with Jay Electronica on it, well, I forget the name of that track, but it's that's fantastic. Kanye is doing something a little different because I think Kanye is transitioning out of hip hop and into gospel. His latest record, I think, is a gospel record. He's relied on gospel samples more and more in his hip-hop records. Right, like Ultralight Beam. Like, so there's a gospel choir in Ultralight Beam, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. There's gospel choir. And sometimes he's pulling this trick that Prince does brilliantly, which is to contrast the divine with the profane. And he can give you these lush and beautiful kind of soundscapes and then talk about, you know, grotesque sex acts or something like that. And that that is supposed to kind of give the listener a feeling in a sense, you know, and I, to me, like, I don't know, I've been in recently in a real deep dive on Prince. Prince kind of comes out the gate in his third album, in particular, Dirty Mind. And it is, it's so funny because it's Purple Rain is the one that gets the PMRC Tipper Gore sticker, but Dirty Mind is a really dirty record. I mean, he's dealing with incest. He's talking about oral sex. He's like all over, he's really pushing the boundaries. And yet it's only like a couple of years later, you start to see like this is somebody who is profoundly religious and is inspired. Yes. If you listen to Sign of the Times and a song like The Cross, we're Jewish, so we, we don't relate directly with it. It's a deeply spiritual song. And even if it didn't have any words, you would feel that it was a spiritual experience listening to it. And he has a ton of songs, which he's talking about God. He's talking about his relationship with God. And to me, we're seeing kind of hip hop doing that. Do I think it's going to be a trend? I don't really know because I don't know where hip hop is right now. It feels like there isn't a singular moment and there's a lot of different scenes, you know, and Kendrick also is another artist where you can hear him struggle with God as well, which is great. So I think you're sort of seeing some of that. The difference with Chance the Rapper, the reason that Coloring Book is unique is because that is a record which is not just talking about his relationship with God. It's also kind of telling the listener, this is the right path. And take it from me, I was strung out on Zan. My dog died. I was in a depression. And then I found the right way. That right there is kind of crossing over from just sort of, I'm going to talk about the spirituality to becoming an advocate in the culture for a kind of a, a, a life, you know, kind of in God's light, so to speak. I was actually talking about this with a good friend of mine, Zoe Jicks. Shouts to Zoe. If you think about Kanye and Kendrick versus Chance, 
and you think about it in terms of biblical typologies, which they're clearly drawing on, about how to use music and art and song and rhyme and verse. So Kanye and Kendrick are doing sort of like a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel or an Isaiah, right? They're doing social critique. They're doing the city is full of violence. God is going to judge us for our sins. And Chance is doing more of a David thing. Like he's doing Psalms. He's doing like hymns of praise or and and hymns of redemption, right? Like that's kind of the trajectory. That's so that's brilliant. That's a brilliant point. I would like to read your essay on coloring book. That's very good. <laughs> now I gotta do it. Yeah. Well actually I want to get back to to something you said before. Compton as a hip hop capital. So I actually so I remember the first time I listened to UGK and as someone who you know cares deeply about religion faith i mean you could hear those influences gospel or preaching and that kind of thing on the records and the first time i listened to them i think the first album i heard was riding dirty i was like what is this this is amazing and then you find out they're from like texas like port arthur and it throws you for a loop but then you're like well actually like janice joplin's from port arthur i guess that makes sense so what's the most underrated hip-hop city mm, that's a good question that's a hard question you can't really say Atlanta anymore because properly rated. I sort of want to say Philadelphia, my hometown, because Philly, first of all, is in hip hop from the jump. Like there's Schooly D, there's obviously the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, but the roots were, I think, enormously influential after their moment in a way. Like, I don't think they really fit in in a weird way in the 90s. Questlove in his memoir writes about this idea that they didn't quite fit in with the rap scene, which was very gangster. And, you know, in the 90s, there was the East Coast and West Coast and everything like that. But since then, I think that the Roots approach to music, adding elements of live instrumentation, they're a live band. That's something that we've seen hip hop do more and more. So you have Kendrick is Kendrick's a genius, obviously, but he sort of made to Pimp a Butterfly and particularly kind of a Roots album. And Kanye does that too, which is that, you know, yes, he started off being this incredible crate digger who came up and figured out ways to speed up beats and doing all these things that were moving that art forward. But then, you know, if you want, I think on his second album, what is it, College Dop, Late Registration, he starts bringing in all this live instrumentation. And I feel like, well, the roots were the people that kind of thought about doing that first. So I would say Philly is an underrated hip hop city at this point i remember listening to mellow my man the first time like that track on oh hell yeah so good and black thought starts rapping over like triplets like a jazz like a jazz beat like in the breakdown of that song it blew my mind i didn't even know that was possible like it was crazy black thought's a very underrated lyricist in my view you could argue black thoughts maybe like the best freestyler out there maybe the best he's one of the best three he's a phenomenal freestyler i just think that black thought is often overlooked because he came out in my view the richest period for hip-hop so you know like that he's making records when the greats are making records you know jay-z biggie nas tupac and everybody knows them and you know who's, who's gonna argue they're they're great but i just think black thought is phenomenal like if black thought hit in 2015 we would all be talking about him people would lose their minds yeah right i mean like these are like you know carmelo and charles barkley like they all just came to the league when michael jordan was there that was the problem <laughs> pretty much I, that's how i look at it i think i think black thought is really underrated in that regard and i think that quest love is a musical genius although i just finished his latest book music is history and i think it's a little bit uh uh, anyway, <laughs> tossed off. It could have been a lot better. It's an interesting concept. His book is basically like saying, I want to talk about one song from a year and talk about how it connects to current events, which is a really interesting thing. If you want to read a book that does that very, very well, 1971 by David Hepworth. It's an excellent book. And there's, a, there's now a documentary on Apple TV called 1971, which is based on the book. That I recommend very much.
I love it. So this is the kind of conversation that like on a typical like weekly Bible podcast would be unusual, which leads me to uh, a question that I got from a listener. Shouts to Jamie. He, I, I myself as well, had heard you talk about uh, Israel last summer on Michael Rappaport's podcast. And I've heard you a bunch of times there. You're like the official, unofficial political correspondent. Shouts, <laughs> shouts to Rappaport. And in general, you do that masterfully. Like you talk about difficult or, or very complex topics and environments where many listeners or readers, you know, don't share your perspective or your instincts or your knowledge. So how do you think about doing that, particularly when it comes to Israel, but or the Middle East or foreign policy in general? How do you think about having those kinds of conversations in difficult places? I mean, one of the problems recently with talking about Israel is the same problem where like in 2020, if you were to look at footage on YouTube and see, you know, parking lots full of cars on fire and then say, this seems like there was a riot in this city. And then somebody would say, oh, well, then you're a fascist and you hate people of color. Well, that, you know, then there's a, there's a huge social disincentive, particularly in social media, having certain opinions. And that certainly is now happening when, it, when there is and unfortunately, what appears to be sort of the in inevitable cycle of grief wars, particularly out of, with Gaza, that when that starts off, there's sort of like enormous moral opprobrium that is hurled at people who defend Israel in those situations because Israel is the stronger combatant. And because it's factually true that the life of for a lot of most Palestinians in Gaza is miserable. And I just think that if if that's the, the only facts that you're going to consider and then you know, to think about it, then, you know, you're not getting the full story. But I, I want to get back to this other point, which is that I think kind of that connects to all of this, which is that we're in a moment where there's a style of discourse around certain topics that makes the, the kind of discussion really difficult. We see it with, you know, I think the George Floyd thing is right, as you see it again, you know, when there's a kind of a, a new conflict in the Middle East. You see it to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not, as again, I'm not a Trump supporter by any stretch. And I think that it's true that with among Trump supporters, there are certain kinds of points of view that they won't hear. But there's a lot of shaming from elites for anybody who says, well, you know, I kind of thought that Trump's approach to China was okay. You're not allowed to say that. And that's poison for liberal democracy. That's poison for discourse. So that's the first point to make, which is that this is the environment they're living in. And Israel is a part of that. The second thing is, is that I look at the Middle East right now and I think to myself, there's always reason to be concerned. Israel's a tiny nation state. There are countries that are menacing that want to destroy it. There's all kinds of problems that Israel has, but it has been a real miracle too, in a lot of ways. Under the threat of terrorism, potential nuclear threats and things like that, Israel has built this incredibly robust economy. And the region is starting to kind of come around to accepting Israel. Part of that's because they share an enemy with Iran. And it's not necessarily, I'd like to see more of that on a kind of people to people level and not just states recognizing Israel through the Abraham Accords. But it's, there's, there's a thought, Some, things are changing right now. And those are things to, I think, note and to be somewhat optimistic about. And I think it leaves the shrill activist set that are in Europe and America when it comes to Israel that wants to kind of demonize Israel and say it's like an apartheid state, increasingly out of touch with the reality on the ground. You know, the, the BDS movement and the version of the BDS movement where it says, well, and we, we only BDS in the occupied territories. But, you know, you've, there, there's been very good reporting that if you just have a factory and it's employing Palestinians, it's like you do that and you then you will destroy jobs that are benefiting people there on the West Bank. Gaza is a different story. The only way 
that we're ever going to get around this problem is that there has to be Palestinian movement to unseat Hamas, which are, you know, they're a tyrannical regime. But I do think that there are signs of potential progress. And when Arabs and Palestinians see countries like the United Arab Emirates, which I think that at least when I was living in Cairo, lots of young people wanted to sort of say, I wish our country was more like the Arab, United Arab Emirates with all its prosperity and modernity. I think that, that that has an effect over time. And I hope, at least I hope so. I actually was just in Israel and we were speaking with these really, really inspiring kind of like young Bedouin in the South of Israel. And this is a group of young people who are really taking it upon themselves to grow as businessmen, as as agriculturalists, as as thinkers. Um, and they're associated with this movement called Yanabia, which is really, really inspiring. One of the things that blew me away was they said, we kind of look at the United Arab Emirates Emirates as a model for what we can achieve. I said, why is that? They said, well, because the Emiratis are Bedouin. And you kind of look at what they've achieved by by just deciding to build, you know, notwithstanding whatever challenges they have in their own region, which are significant. Like even if you take if you took Israel out of the Middle East entirely, the Middle East would still be a very unsettled place. And they said, so, you know, we can kind of like sit here and, and complain and fetch. But if we sit down and, and actually build, we can achieve something amazing. I was blown away by that. Like so much of what's happening in the Middle East is paradigm shifting, not just in the geopolitical sense of, well, you know, you can set up an embassy here and set up an embassy there. It just changes individuals' expectations on the ground, or at least you hope, right? Yeah. By the way, we experienced the same thing when I've been in Iraq and I've talked to the, you know, tribal, the Sunni tribal sheikhs that allied with America. They saw the United Arab Emirates as a model for them. They wanted that prosperity. That in the end is very, very powerful. And we should never forget that. We should never forget that simply having a better system than corruption and violence and the stagnation that comes with all of that is a really powerful motivator. And that's also the only way you're going to kind of get lasting change. You can't, if, if the Israel Defense Forces invaded Gaza and set up a new regime, that would not solve the problem. It has to kind of come from this work of what might be called consciousness raising on the part of the Gazans themselves. We don't have to live like this. We don't have to live in a kind of constant state of, a, of emergency and war that it's possible for all of us to, to prosper together. I wanted to ask you one last question. So I'm sort of in like the biblical tradition of like Isaiah or what have you. I like to think you know, I like to look forward to a time of redemption, salvation, that kind of thing. So listen, we just came through or we're in the middle of a pandemic. We just came through a divisive election and we have, you know, midterms coming up in America. You know, there's inflation and there's all sorts of all sorts of reasons to kind of look forward and just be very pessimistic. But if you had to make the case for for optimism in 2022 or recording right around New Year's, what would be the Eli Lake case for optimism in 2022? OK, so the case for optimism is as follows. The Omicron variant is more virulent, but far less deadly. Usually that is associated with when a virus evolves in such a way that it's basically COVID is becoming the common cold. And we want Omicron, if that is that data holds, to become the dominant strain so that at that point, everybody gets it, it's the cold, and we can move on. And the argument for optimism is once we sort of accept this, once the institutions of our society accept that it's the cold and you know, that's how it's going to be. At that point, I really think there will be a major economic boom. Now, it'll probably be accompanied by inflation, as we'll see, and possibly supply shortages, but there will be a boom. And that boom is, you know, accompanied by the kind of hopefully unleash the sort of creative energies that will hopefully get us to whatever the next phase of our politics will be, because this has been, the last five years have been horrible 
politi- for our politics and our discourse. She's like exhausting. <laughs> exhausting. It's like, you know, exactly. It's tearing families apart. Like whatever side you're on, who's who's being like, yeah, I want I whatever the last five years was, I just want more of that. Like who's saying that on either side, right? I want to ask you a question. Let's do it. Okay. So how does a Zionist, uh, a proud Jewish American uh, who cares about Israel, how do you grapple with the fact that on the one hand, I think that liberals are correct when they say that Donald Trump has demagogic qualities that are never good for the Jews. You, he has said things in private and sometimes in public that one could certainly interpret as anti-Semitic. Not anti-Semitic like Goebbels anti-Semitic, but like anti-Semitic in the like Archie Bunker sense. Like, oh, I always trust Jews with my money, that kind of thing. Right. The fact that he was so divisive is not, you know, there's a lot of reasons, Jew, good Jewish reasons for saying Trump's not good for America, not good for the, our people. On the other hand, I can't um, think of at least any president other than Harry Truman who was better for the state of Israel than Donald Trump. Not just the, we all know the list, moving the embassy, Abraham Accords, getting out of the Iran deal, Soleimani, which was a great operation, you know, partnering with Israeli intelligence and sabotaging Iran's nuclear program. I can say also I'm sympathetic to people who, if your only issue was, you know, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, you would say Trump was very good and I'm going to support Trump if that was the, you're only voting on those issues. How do you reconcile that? How, what, what's a serious Jewish kind of way that sort of balances those things? And by the way, I am not in any way, I just want to say, endorsing the toxic lie that the election in 2020 was stolen. I think it's very bad for the former president to continue to say that, to whip people up. January 6th was a disgrace. I'm not in any way signing off on any of that. But like, as I said, I have complicated feelings on this question. Give me the benefits of your rabbinic scholarship and how we think about this. So for whatever those benefits are worth, very little, I would assume. So here's how I think about this. The other day I was listening to the Beatles, as, as I am wont to do with my kids. As one should. I listen to Beatles with my, my daughter. By the way, speaking, like, parenthetically, like, the best test of just, forget, like, great music, just good songwriting is, can kids, like, a little kid appreciate this? And, I mean, the Beatles may be at the top of that list. Just, like, anyone can get into that music. So, anyway, listening to the Beatles, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, everybody knows, you know, in the 60s, 70s, these four names of these four artists, right? Like Lennon, McCartney, George, and Ringo, the most famous names in the world. You'd have to be an idiot not to know who these people were. Today, I would guess that most Americans could still name, if you ask them who was in the Beatles, they could tell you Lennon and McCartney. They could probably tell you Ringo, George Harrison, unlikely, uh, or, or at least less likely. And, you know, you had that whole thing of, you know, it was like a joke, but I think it was like Rihanna had put on Instagram, like, oh, or someone had put on Instagram, like, oh, Rihanna collabed with Paul McCartney. His life's about, like, his career is about to blow up, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually thought to myself the other day, if you fast forwarded 200 years, 300 years, what, is there going to be a name from the Beatles that people will still remember? I think people will still remember Paul McCartney's name and maybe John Lennon's name. I just think they're two of the greatest musicians who ever lived. So why am I mentioning this? If you think about Jewish history, so I could name you just off the top of my head, like my top 150 rabbis alive today. I I could give you 150 names. I'm not worried about that. And every single one of them is superlative. Like, it, this is, it's, it's not just like the only 150 that I know. These are like the 150 best. How many of those names are going to be remembered as individuals in 200 to 300 years, like maybe one or maybe one or two. It doesn't mean because all 150 were worthless. It's just that Jewish history thinks about value in ways very, very different from 
let's say, Greek culture, like Hebrew civilization and Greek civilization think about worth and historical significance in very different ways. The Greeks had individual heroes, Achilles, Hercules, and so on. The Hebrews didn't have individual heroes. We had families, right? We had the the Abrahamic family. You know, Abraham is kind of the patriarch, but he's not like an Achilles. He's like the father of a bunch of kids. And so you could look back through Jewish history. Like there are very few individual names that we know. There are hundreds and millions across, I mean, across time, probably billions, maybe trillions of people who contributed to this majestic civilization. So if I think about the value add that Jewish civilization brings to the American experiment, it's precisely in being able to think in long time horizons, right? It's like Americans are just unusually bad uh, at thinking in long time horizons. This is why we have a hard time preparing for things where on the other side, we're very innovative and are also historical sense of adventurousness. And, and impatience makes us good at solving problems quickly, but we're bad at thinking in long time horizons. Like look at at social security right now. So what Jewish civilization brings is the ability to say, let's think about this not as a one month problem or a four year problem or a 10 year problem. Like, let's think about this as a hundred year endeavor. So I think if I'm a Zionist or someone who cares very deeply about Israel, which I am, So the way that I try my very, very, very best to evaluate policy towards Israel is in those long time horizons, like 100 years from now, what's going to be good for Israel? So if you look back, you know, over the last 70 years of Israeli history, so there are very, very few things that any particular chief executive of the American Republic has done that has moved the needle, like Truman lending his weight to the establishment of Israel is probably the thing. But if you're going beyond that, like you could point to things that were important, but in general, the thing that most moves the needle is that most Westerners, because we have these deep roots in Hebrew and biblical civilization, like just care a lot about the Middle East and are very invested in what happens there. Even today, when pro-Israel folks note that people focus disproportionately on Israel for negative things. Like, I actually see that as part of an overall positive story. Like, you're not going to get people to stop caring about what happens in Israel because that's where we come from as a wider Western society one way or another. So I think if you're asking the question now to bring it around about how do you evaluate Donald Trump as a Zionist, so you could look at the effect that he's exerted upon the American Republic over the last four years, which from a social standpoint, I think is just undeniably negative. You could look at his contribution to American foreign policy, which I think like on the whole is probably pretty positive. You talked about China earlier, the Abraham Accords. But if I'm approaching this as a Zionist and as someone who who cares deeply about Jewish civilization, I think the question to ask is what should we be advocating for or how should we approach advocating for Israel with an eye towards what's going to happen in 100 years? What are people going to remember in 100 years? And in that respect, maybe the Abraham Accords, you could argue, right? Like the Abraham Accords, I think, will be something people still talk about in 100 years. But very few other things that Trump has done for good or for worse. Embassy. The embassy, maybe. But like, I, I honestly suspect that may be looked at kind of more symbolically in 100 years than anything else. Like, I truly think like normalization agreements, the Abraham Accords, It's like people will talk about that in 100 years. So I think we shouldn't rush to sort of say we need to have a judgment on Trump, good or bad for Israel, like right now. That's kind of sort of like the non-Jewish way or sort of the the Americanized way of thinking about evaluating presence. And there's a use to it. Like, I think it's important for... Well, if he runs in 2024. Of course, of course. That's why I'm glad that there are people who think that way. But if you're asking me as, as an American, I can make those analyses and we can kind of go back and forth about that. If you're asking me as a Zionist, How would I evaluate? I would encourage people to say, advocate for things that are going to matter in 100 years. The things that are going to matter for Israel in 100 years is for America to become, I think, more religious as a country in general, for faith, community, and tradition to be more important to the American body politic. I think 
for Americans to think more seriously about their roots, both in terms of the integrity of the American story, right? Like thinking about America as a covenantal nation that takes its biblical roots very seriously, but also is very imperfect from its founding and, and, and like biblical Israel tries its best to get better and has to conquer its idolatries. Like, and so if you're talking about like what are going to move the needle on things that help Israel, I think it's America taking its biblical roots more seriously, which is why, you know, I personally get more exercised about people tearing down statues of unambiguously good people like George, you know, or people, uh, people who should be celebrated as American founders, even if they're not unambiguously good people like George Washington. I get more interested in that as a Zionist than I do about, you know, like this appropriations bill or that appropriations bill, because I think in the long run, what's good for Israel is for America to take its Hebraic roots more seriously. And I think 100 years from now, we'll be able to evaluate the Trump presidency in a Jewish way, right? Like we'll be able to say, okay, like what did he do? If anything, what did he do that moved the needle? I suspect in a hundred years, we'll look back and say, and we'll look back and we'll see that America, whatever kind of short-term effects the Trump presidency had in America, you know, socially or, or otherwise, I think there'll be short-term effects. I think we'll look back and say, yes, the Abraham Accords were, were a very positive thing and we're, and we should be very grateful for that. So I don't know if that, that helps. All right. All right. I know we're over time, but I, I want to tease out something here. Okay. You are in the modern Orthodox community. I have spoken to modern Orthodox people, and I get the sense that those, many of them did support Trump, and they supported Trump for a lot of the same reasons that evangelicals supported Trump or other kind of cultural conservatives, because they felt that there was this kind of cultural freight train that was only moving in one direction. And it didn't seem like anything could stop it, except for perhaps this golem called Donald Trump, who was this great disruptor, but it would be better than this kind of rapid glide path towards, you know, trans everything, et cetera. So to sort of, let's leave aside policy, but was, you could argue the Trump interregnum that maybe even call it the Trump intervention. Could that be considered from this longer term thinking a good thing, even though the golem comes with all this other bad stuff we all know? And so we're always like being warned, like, careful what you wish for. You know, you never know this guy. It's it's no good. You know, like. So I think you're right. A lot of the support kind of in the Orthodox community, which is much more than you'd find. I mean, there was you probably find the majority support in the Orthodox community for for Trump. I think you're right that a lot of it was motivated by sort of like, listen, the train's moving the wrong way and we just got to stop it. And if this is what we need to do to stop it, that's what we'll do. I think that explains a lot of it. But I also think it's probably fair and and right to say that whatever your analysis of Trump, and I was not a Trump supporter, leaving your analysis of Trump himself aside, one interesting thing that happened kind of during, as you called it, the Trump interregnum that I actually thought was positive was that it was the first time that Orthodox Jews came to believe that they can be taken seriously as policy leaders and contributors in a way that allowed them to be authentic. So one of the unusual things about the Trump administration was that it just had the disproportionate number of Orthodox or kind of Orthodox adjacent Jews involved. And, you know, Jews have been in politics forever, but they've very rarely been Orthodox. And if they have, that's kind of been like incidental to who they are and their personality and their policy proclivities. I think this was the first time where like you would look at kind of like Orthodox communal periodicals like Mishpacha magazine or Ami magazine, and you'd see like 
political figures on the cover, like Jewish political figures on the cover, there was like the sense of excitement and maybe is naive, but I think there was a sense of excitement like, oh, like we can be taken seriously as people who have a worldview. And I think the Abraham Accords were a good example of that. Like, you know, a couple of friends of mine and I were talking about it when it happened. This was like the triumph of like Kiddush Club politics over the State Department, right? Like this is the kind of thing that, you know, the greatest experts in the foreign policy establishment assured us where it was impossible. But anyone who's ever been to like a Kiddush after you know, minion at an Orthodox synagogue has, has been floating these ideas for like two and a half decades already. Right. So, right, right, right. <laughs> so th- there was a sense of like, Oh my God, actually we're not idiots. We have what to contribute and we can do it by being authentically ourselves. If you're looking at like, what's going to be the lasting, like I said, I, th- I think a lot of the most negative effects of the last four years, which there were many, I think they're going to dissipate, or at least I hope they're going to dissipate. But if you're wondering what will stick around uh, and be lasting, from this moment of kind of orthodox enmeshment with this movement to the extent that it has been enmeshed is just that orthodox Jews will become more confident in their ability to be part of the policy world. I think that's a positive thing. And I think it'll grow and mature in in ways that are more exciting than it is now. That's super interesting. Uh, And it's a great way to think about it, which is it really is about the communities that became politically awakened. Yeah. Uh, it was wonderful to reconnect there, Ari. Thank you so much for having me. Amen, brother. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. I look at Eli as someone who's doubled down during his lifetime on the blessings that liberty and freedom make possible, not just for himself, but for everyone. And that's a hard line to walk but he just does it so well, whether it's through reporting the stories of those people across the globe who don't yet have it but want it, or making sure America itself is in a place to keep it, or even getting excited about art forms like hip hop or rock and roll that are free flowing, adventurous, and ultimately, at least lately, aiming towards a higher purpose. Sure, it's trendy these days to think about all the things going wrong in society, but people like Eli can really help us do something better for our souls, and that's seeing the goods of liberty for those who wish them. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify. Give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.